Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Chris Hughes, head of the International Relations Department, and on behalf of the department and the school, I'd like to give a very warm welcome to our distinguished guest, Professor Robert O. Cohen. As we can see from the, the applause, he hardly needs an introduction, but he is, of course, a uh, professor at the Woodrow Wilson School, Princeton University. Uh, we have all read his publications, going back to Power and Interdependence, After Hegemony. These are core texts, core works that have shaped the discipline of international relations. His work on regime theory, complex interdependence, later moving on to humanitarian intervention, and most recently, a number of new works which are in the process of coming out as publications on anti-Americanism or anti-interventionism, uh, a Madison lecture on the politics of climate change, and another article on contested multilateralism. So the uh, agenda keeps growing, and the discipline is constantly enriched by Professor Cohen's works. Today's talk is on the topic of nominal democracy, question mark, prospects for democratic global governance. Professor Cohan is going to talk for about 35 minutes because he really wants to encourage Q&A, and so I'm, we look forward to a lively discussion. Uh, can I remind you, first of all, to switch off your mobile phones, please? Uh, I say it again, switch off your mobile phones, please. This uh, lecture will be recorded, so you can look at it again later. Uh, and uh, on that word... Now that you've all switched off your mobile phones, uh, I will hand over to Professor Cohan, who's switching off his phone. It was off. I was checking to make sure. Yeah, and I think I switched mine off. Okay. Uh, over to you, Professor Cohan. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be speaking at, in this lecture hall again, where I've spoken at least once or maybe twice before. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be uh, at the institution of Susan Strange, whom you probably didn't know because she was a, a professor here 30, 30 20, 20 or 30 years ago, but who leaves a legacy of critical um, interrogation of international relations that I'm sure continues. I wanted to add one thing to what Professor Hill said. The, uh, the paper on anti-Americanism and anti-interventionism uh, uses the Arabic Twitter universe as the base. So it's a very big, big departure for me since I've often talked about situations involving one or a small number uh, of, of entities. And we process uh, 27 million tweets from the Arabic Twitter universe from 19, in, in, in 2012 and 2013 to try to figure out uh, what, how people are thinking about the United States uh, in world affairs, uh, not in public opinion poll reactions, but in actually in what they, what they tweet. So I'd be happy to, to talk about that in, in the question period if, if you want to. Uh, now, Susan Strange's critical spirit reminds me of a story which I sometimes tell, which I would tell. Now, and it's a story which ought to always be told after an, a flattering introduction like, like Professor Hughes's. Um, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who was later president of, of the University of Chicago, uh, was dean of Yale Law School at age 28. Make you feel bad, those of you who, who are more than 28. Um, and um, he, had a, he was a radical. He had a visit from William Howard Taft, who was the chief justice of the United States, a former president, a conservative, and a man of some self-importance. Uh, 
uh, uh, former President Taft said to Hutchins, well, Mr. Hutchins, I assume that at Yale you teach all your students that judges are fools. To which Hutchins says very quickly, no, Mr. Chief Justice, at Yale we teach our students to find that out for themselves. <laughs> so you're to find out whether I'm, whether I'm a fool for yourself and not to take too much, to get too much deference to uh, these introductions. I'm going to talk about nom- what I call nominal democracy. This is a talk about uh, the claims that there are prospects or the, or the reality of some um, sort of a global democratic governance, claims that have been made in, in various places, including this institution. In a brilliant book fifth, written 15 years ago, Stephen Krasner coined the phrase organized hypocrisy to refer to situations in which, quote, institutional norms are enduring but frequently ignored. In such, uh, in, in such situations, he said, quote, rulers must honor perhaps only in talk, certain norms, but at the same time act in ways that violate these norms, unquote. Well, contemporary global governance is, in my view, a worthy ideal, and I'll come back to that. I want to emphasize that. As the human uh, impact on the ecosystem continues to increase, we will need it more, uh, more and more. But discussions of democratic global governance, unfortunately, conform well in many ways to Krasner's notion of organized hypocrisy. The rhetoric of global governance is heavy, with references to the rule of law and democratic governance. But the reality, as the United States has taken military action in Iraq, China has become more powerful and assertive, and Russia has, uh, has invaded the Ukraine and annexed the Crimea, is at best mixed. In some respects, democratic pressures remain strong especially because the democratic ideology is the only one that appears to have universal appeal. But there are trade-offs with other objectives, and as a result, counter-pressures are manifold. There will be many temptations to make global democracy only nominal, hence extending organized hypocrisy into yet another realm. This lecture focuses on, on, on the difficulties that stand in the way of genuine global democratic governance, despite a zeitgeist that emphasizes the value of democracy at every level of government. What I fear is that the result of this talk about global democracy will be a relatively empty form of global democracy, what I call nominal democracy. Genuine democracy is responsive to the preferences of real human beings. It requires elections that hold, hold leaders accountable to publics and other arrangements that hold non-elected leaders accountable to elected ones. It also requires an effective rule of law with protection of individual rights, uh, the existence of a, of a vibrant civil society whose discussions are heard throughout the polity, substantial governmental transparency, and procedures to ensure that leaders defend their policies in public, along with, with some opportunities for confidential discussions to, to promote compromise. Nominal democracy meets democratic standards on the surface and embodies the rhetoric of democracy, but lacks the content. Uh, transnational and transgovernmental elite networks, which I study, can play valuable roles in world politics, but they do not constitute democracy in the classic sense and should not be confused with it. Contemporary global governance does, not, does have two crucial features that promote some semblance of democracy. 
features that were missing from the classical 19th century balance of power system or the system that, that prevailed between World War, Wars I and II. First, the system is dominated by, by constitutional democracies, notably the United States and member states of the European Union, which require democracy as a condition of accession. Constitutional democracies have, have procedures designed to combat special interests, what James Madison in the United States referred to as faction, although these procedures are not always effective. Constitutional democracies tend to, tend to protect individual and, and, and minority rights and foster, and foster deliberation, although imperfectly. The existence of, of constitutional democracies is therefore a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition for democratic governance at the global level. Second, both the rhetoric and the practices of global multilateral institutions are infused with democratic principles. Their assemblies feature open discussion and voting, and they increasingly manifest informational transparency. Global institutions, although not procedurally democratic, think of the Security Council with the veto, uh, uh, and, and think of the World Bank with its weighted voting, also perform functions that are supportive of democracy. They help to moderate narrowly nationalistic pressures, uh, for example, in trade policy, through reliance on, on the principle of generalized reciprocity and through international adjudication. Multilateral institutions also serve to protect individual and, and minority rights through a, a variety of more or less legalized institutions. Finally, depending on the willingness of, of governments to, to deliberate, they foster collective deliberation, offering forums in, in which proposals for solutions and best practices can be discussed and experimental governance arrangements tried out. Therefore, I'm an advocate of multilateral institutions. I think they do a lot of good things. They promote deliberation. Uh, they, they publicize issues. They sometimes adjudicate questions. Uh, but they're not democratic. On the surface, at least, these practices uh, 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 mimic democratic ones, although votes are cast by states, as you know, instead of by individuals. Um, although the democratic facade of multilateral institutions may often be used by at least some of the participants as a cover for non-democratic practices, generating hypocrisy, as a form of hypocrisy, it can also make a difference in actual practices. Behind the scenes, however, powerful states may hold the purse strings and constrain decisions in global institutions, as Randall Stone has shown. So in this address, I propose to emphasize the shortcomings of contemporary moves toward democratization of global governance without uh, eschewing the desirability of multilateralism. And I am and, and going to emphasize the, the shortcomings, especially of democracy as a form of governance at the global level. I will begin by pointing out that democracy generates trade-offs and dilemmas as much as, as it provides solutions to governance issues. I'll then illustrate this argument with two cases, one with reference to money laundering measures by the UN Security Council, and secondly by attempts to take effective action on climate change. The core of the lecture then identifies three gaps in global democratic governance what I call the interest-public goods gap, the emotional gap, and the infrastructure gap. Three ways in which global governance does not reach the standard of national democratic governance. Well-functioning domestic democratic systems have over decades or centuries developed institutions or common values to avoid creating such gaps or to bridge them over. But the contemporary global system does not have such mechanisms. Practitioners of, of, of global governance are therefore like tightrope walkers on a, without a safety net. 
If the policy dilemmas become too severe or the pressure is too great, they do not have this infrastructure of domestic civil society to rely on. In my view, the three global governance gaps are serious and make it difficult to imagine that truly democratic global governance will appear in, in the next few, day, a few decades. It may, it may appear in your lifetime, not, I think, in mine. But this inclusion is not the counsel of despair for people like ourselves who participate in and even constitute many of the transnational networks that are increasingly numerous and thick. As I will argue at the end of this lecture, there is much that we in this room can do and do over, over our, our careers without persuading ourselves that we are actually the vanguard of an imminent global democracy. So I'm going to begin with two dilemmas or trade-offs, which are generated by pressures for global democratic governance. Um, it seems that on some issues, notably those having to do with terrorism, more democratization could force changes in established practices that might endanger their efficacy. This is a worry of the intelligence establishments, making attainment of worthwhile objectives more difficult. So the struggle against terrorism highlights a set of trade-offs on which we have to, to reflect when discussing global governance and democracy. These trade-offs became especially clear when the UN Security Council sought to take action against the financing of terrorists. So I'm going to talk about this case for a few minutes. It's the case of money laundering and the relationship between UN Security Council action on money laundering and European law. It illustrates the dilemmas and the trade-offs that I'm trying to get at in this talk. So even before the attacks of September 11, 2001, the Security Council had passed resolutions designed to limit and restrict funding of terrorist organizations. Especially, it, it, it invoked the mandatory provisions of, of Chapter 7, which, as you know, uh, can require states to act in certain ways, not just advise them to. Uh, in its resolutions 1267 and later 1373, after, after the attack, to require states to impose strict measures to prohibit actions that could facilitate money laundering for terrorists. The Financial Action Task Force, set up in conjunction with this, has enacted various measures to make these requirements operational. Uh, states can be put on a, on a gray list or a black list, and there are serious consequences for being on a increasingly serious and blacker forms of this list. And I'm not going to go into detail on those, on those arrangements. The key point is that there were sanctions imposed by the Security Council on states that were uh, determined to be um, uh, facilitating money laundering, and even more particularly, that sanctions were imposed on individuals who were determined by a committee of the Security Council to be engaged in money laundering. Uh, and these sanctions were imposed without normal due process restrictions that you find in democratic societies. So this lack of due process became apparent in, in 2002, when Sweden pushed for and failed to, uh, to obtain the removal of three Somali-based uh, Swedish citizens, Somali-born uh, Somali uh, Swedish citizens, who were added to the sanctions list immediately following 9-11. Uh, arguments about due process in this regime became part of a broader discussion in the UN about the need to incorporate human rights principles into anti-terrorism measures. Yet for many years, the Security Council, which was acting at, at the impetus of the United States and Britain right after 9-11 especially, did not modify the regime to, to address the, these concerns in any significant way. Although a UN body concluded in 2005 that, quote, the many legal challenges 
to the measures, in, in particular in Europe and the United States, pose a serious impediment to the success of the sanctions regime, unquote, the Security Council made only minor adjustments to it until the European Court of Justice, in the famous Cadi cases, which I will describe, challenged it. So, uh, Mr. Cadi uh, was a Saudi citizen living in Italy uh, who found uh, in uh, uh, 2004 or 2005 uh, that his bank account had been frozen. It had been frozen because he was on a list from the U.S. or British security services of a terrorist financier. Um, there was no evidence uh, presented publicly. Evidence was, was presented to uh, well, the Security Council Committee in a secret session and without his knowing it. And his first knowledge of this situation was when he couldn't access his funds in his bank in Italy. So Cadi sued. Uh, and, and he would face the difficult problem because the U.N. Charter says that U.N. Security Council mandatory measures under Chapter 7 uh, have precedence over any other international law. makes it very clear that no other court can overrule those measures or strike them down. There is no Supreme Court for the Security Council. Uh, so it looked like a weak case, and, and Cadi lost it in the first part of the European process in, in the court of first instance. Uh, but... In, in 2008, the European Court of Justice sided with Cadi, and they couldn't strike down the Security Council reg regulations. They had no authority to do that. What they did was to say that these could not be enforced in Europe, where Cadi lived, because they violated fundamental principles of European human rights law, of U European constitutional principles, which, which Germany especially has been intent on incorporating into European law. So at this point, of course, the whole sanctions regime was at, list, oh, was at risk. If people who lived in Europe could have the sanctions regime lifted, it would not be effective anywhere. Uh, and so uh, the Security Council pushed back. Uh, they they uh, claimed they, they did a few little things which didn't amount to much. Uh, they changed their procedures. It came back to the European Court of Justice, which said, you didn't do enough. We're still going to strike it down. They, had, they suspended the striking down, but they demanded more. And in 2010, the Security Council backed down to the European Court of Justice and agreed to the appointment of an person. Uh, and since her appointment, at least through the end of last year, when I checked, at least 20, 26 individuals uh, had been delisted through this process, and only three requests for delisting had been denied. That is, some system had been was set up for the first time, which, which uh, involved a modicum of due process for people whose bank accounts had been frozen without their knowledge and with no evidence presented. And Cadi eventually, after five or six years of, uh, or no, six or seven years of litigation, uh, finally won his case. And on, on uh, October 5th, 2012, the Security Council declared that the assets ban, assets freeze, travel ban, and arms embargo, which had been imposed on Cadi, uh, was no longer in effect. But the European courts weren't satisfied, and the case is still, actually, uh, the European Court of Justice is, is, is still objecting to the European to the UN Security Council Council process. European Court wants some external court, not just an Oxford person, to adjudicate these issues. So the Cadi case, I'm not going to go into detail on it more, but it made clear a major theme of this talk: 
That is, the tensions between global governance, as practiced by, by the Security Council, which is our most effective in the security area, most effective instrument of global governance, uh, and democratic rule of law principles. Uh, the Security Council relied on, on, on financial sanctions, but the system lacked any built-in checks and balances. Uh, so the great powers, especially the United States, sought to dictate the system which put prevention of terrorism far above protection of individual rights on a scale of values. The system was handed over to the intelligence defense bureaucracies, essentially, of the United States and Great Britain. Privileging security over rights, however, was unacceptable for the European Court of Justice, and the struggle I have just described ensued. The dilemma, therefore, is that advancing otherwise worthwhile objectives through global institutions, conflicted with core values of liberal democracy, as as interpreted by the court. So all good things don't go together. Uh, Effective, global, multilateral anti-terrorism action, which most of us would probably favor, conflicted in the way it was practiced with basic liberal democratic rule of law principles. Now, of course, this struggle can take place in domestic systems as well. Lincoln waived habeas corpus during the U.S. Civil War, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt established internment camps for U.S. citizens whose only uh, crime was Japanese ancestry. However, in an established system of constitutional democracy, there is a court system, which is supposed, it failed in the U.S. case there, uh, to rule on the basis of fundamental principles which is able to reach an authoritative judgment. Courts may fail, as the U.S. Supreme Court did it in, in, in the Korematsu case, to protect rights, uh, but the fact that they are available enhances the chances, at least, that principal decisions will prevail. Such constitutional courts are not, as you know, universally available at the global level. And there is no such court that has jurisdiction over Security Council action the way the U.S. Supreme Court has jurisdiction over presidential action. Let me talk about climate change a minute and global governance. Advocates of taking effective action against human-induced climate change resorted beginning in the late 1980s to global governance. Within a a decade, they they had created a a formidable set of institutions. The Intergovernmental Panel on, on, on Climate Change, the IPCC, the UN uh, FCCC, the Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, to Make Binding Rules, and, and the Kyoto Protocol to the UN FCCC to specify these rules and how they would apply to individual countries. In the intervening years, the scientific consensus on the seriousness of the threat has only increased. The recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on On climate change, AR5 states that, quote, in recent decades, changes in climate have caused impacts on natural and human systems on all continents and across the oceans, unquote. So the evidence of climate change, and you'll be not surprised in this summary day in late October in England to realize that, um, is compelling. Yet 17 years after the conference that, that, that that passed the Kyoto Protocol, Efforts to construct a comprehensive climate change regime have failed. They've resulted in a regime complex for climate change, that is, a, a, fragmented, a fragmented system of different institutions, instead of a coherent international regime. Although Europe has enacted a regulations that, that create a price for, for carbon, even that price is very low, with carbon trading uh, below $10 a ton in the winter of 
uh, of 2014. Neither the U.S. nor China, which are the two biggest emitters, which together account for almost half of global CO2 CO2 emissions, uh, has enacted strong climate change legislation. And countries that joined the Kyoto Protocol at first, like Canada, Australia, and Japan, have pulled back. They no longer have have agreed to the second period of commitment. Advocates of serious action on climate change have lowered their sights, looking for bottom-up strategies to achieve something in the absence of comprehensive regulation by the larger states or an integrated international regime. Regulating climate change is is beset by familiar free-rider problems. Virtually everyone in the world would benefit from effective regulation that prevented precipitous increases in, in temperature and associated climate disruptions, especially sea level rise. Regardless of who implemented reductions in the use of fossil fuels or uh, whose burning generates uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Unfortunately, everybody would benefit unconditionally. We would all benefit no matter whether, whether we contribute or not. And as a result, the incentive to reduce use of fossil fuels is low. It's costly to do so. Uh, your own action won't help you very much. Everybody else's action will be important. And therefore, everyone has an incentive to delay acting, hoping that others will solve the problem. And everyone has little or no incentive to be a leader, risking costly action that might not achieve very much. It might even hurt your own economy uh, if others do not follow. So failing to cooperate is a malign equilibrium. It's easy to understand why there's not much cooperation. That's the equilibrium of, of this game. And it's difficult to reach a more favorable equilibrium in which all major polluters contribute and face some sort of negative consequences for failing to cooperate. A favorable equilibrium is possible. We see it in international trade, which also had some of the same uh, free rider problems. Uh, But in climate change, such a transformation has not been achieved. It's probably the greatest greatest failure of global governance. It's as global an issue as they come, and it's almost a complete failure so far after over, over 20 years. Now, democracy doesn't seem to help. Supported by, by the Obama administration, the American Clean Energy and Security Act of 2009 provided for a cap-and-trade regime with a price on carbon. It passed the House of Representatives in those far-off days when, when the Democrats had a majority in the House, but it never came to a vote in the Senate. Public opinion polling has shown that climate change is very low on the list of priorities of at least U.S. voters. There has usually been a plurality of support for legislation, a slight, uh, but it hasn't been intense. And in the U.S., it takes an intense, overwhelming majority to pass anything major. And it's striking that the important measures now being taken by the Obama administration to restrict building of coal-fired power plants are taken by executive action under interpretation of the Clean Air Act of 1990. 24 years ago, not as a result of new legislation. In 2011, three countries that had ratified the the Kyoto Protocol, as I mentioned, Canada, Japan, and Russia, announced that they would not take on commitments beginning in 2012. Uh, Although Russia is hardly democratic, Japan and Canada are. And it's, and, it's, and, and it's reasonable to assume that the measures taken by their governments were not as serious as with public opinion in, in these countries. And Australia also is in this category. So democracy is a very effective form of government for representing organized interests. It's wonderful that of corporations, unions, and pensioners, for example, maybe also students, uh, if you organize. Uh, but it does not solve the free rider problem and is much less good at, at representing interests that are diffuse especially those of future generations. The costs of responding to climate change uh, come in the present 
in the form of higher utility bills and gasoline prices. The benefits accrue with some uncertainty to future generations. This is not the kind of issue to which democracies respond effectively. Furthermore, there is some evidence that having more information about climate change does not necessarily increase concern about it. So it's not as if, we've just, if we just teach people uh, about the problem, it will solve itself. Uh, climate change is a wicked problem for democracies, and seeking to regulate it at the global level, while essential to the nature of the problem, makes it even more difficult because it compounds the free rider problem. You can't be sure that others, even if you legislate, will themselves do anything effective. So the dilemma is that more democratic governance, domestically and internationally, does not offer a clear pathway for solving this existential problem. Uh, I think, by the way, that new ways of framing the issue of climate change domestically could help. And I'd be happy in the question period to offer some suggestions to that effect. I'm now going to use my two examples of global governance and, and difficulties or dilemmas or failures of global governance. That is the Cadi case, which is a security human rights case, and the climate change issue, which is a climate change issue, obviously, to illustrate the three gaps that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. The interest public goods gap, the emotional gap, and the infrastructure gap. So first, interest, interest public goods gap. Our basic theories of politics are based on the assumption that people in general act in, on what they perceive to be their own self-interest. At the local, national, and regional levels, they form associations for this purpose, and they devise strategies to achieve their goals. We believe that if we understand their perceived self-interest, we, we political scientists believe this, uh, and the context within which they operate, including structures of power that exist in the society, we can at least make a start at, at understanding and anticipating their behavior. This insight is the core of interest group theories of politics and of most studies of world politics. It can even accommodate an understanding of values and norms as well as psychology if we recognize that normative and psychological considerations also affect how people view their own interests. They're not just simply given by material, brute material reality. Uh, uh, but what if our overriding long-term interests lie in the production of a genuinely public good, such as prevention of runaway climate change? On the basis of our own relatively narrowly defined interests, we are likely to seek to push the burden of preventing or adjusting climate change onto, peer, onto others, people in other countries, future generations. Um, some of us realize, uh, at least in our more public-spirited moments, that to act in this way is to sacrifice the, the greater public good, but that doesn't carry a majority. Successful states have found ways to deal with public goods production, at least some of the time. In the extreme case, both democracies and non-democracies have proven murderously successful at persuading their citizens to fight and die in war. Uh, employing the rhetoric of nationalism and demonizing the enemy or the other are very effective ways of mobilizing human energy, as we see in the Ukraine today, where, where President Putin is enormously popular in Russia for the actions he has taken. But at the global level, there is no readily identifiable other, <laughs> no Martians out there yet, at least, to focus one's um, abuse at. And, uh, and so the most effective national strategy for closing the interest public goods gap, that is, finding an enemy, and mobilizing against the enemy is not available at the global level. And as we've seen, as we've seen this strategy has not been available inside the United States with, with respect to climate change. It's even less available globally. So secondly, there's an emotional gap. There's not just this interest public goods gap. There's an emotional gap. I mentioned nationalism. Uh, 
That raises the issue of the role of emotions in politics. Global governance is a very rationalistic enlightenment project. It often seems bloodless, technocratic, and bureaucratic, like the European Union, uh, which so outraged your prime minister this week by actually applying a formula, or last week, applying a formula, a long-held formula, uh, about payments to the European Union on the basis of uh, GDP. Uh, uh, Global governance does not engage the soul and does not engender strong feelings of identity. The populist reaction we see now against the EU and immigration in a variety of European countries, including Britain and France, suggests the continuing power of emotions and feelings of identity in the contemporary world. Europe can at least can aspire to a sense of place and history that can't be achieved by genuinely global governance. Yet the European Union has itself been notably unsuccessful in building emotional support among its peoples. In the United States, the national anthem is played at sports events, such as baseball games, uh, and at high-tone ceremonies, such as the Harvard University commencement. One can sense, watching on television, the intensely patriotic uh, identity of the New York Yankees manager when the national anthem is played before a baseball contest. Uh, when Aretha Franklin sang the national anthem at Harvard this last May, she brought tears to many eyes. The American National Anthem is not, by the way, a great piece of music, as some of you know. Uh, and it was composed during the only war during which the United States Capitol was occupied and burned by an unnamed, unnameable enemy army. Uh, but it resonates with Americans. It reflects their shared emotional identity, much more than the European anthem resonates with Europeans, despite its much higher level of musical content. I don't know how many of you know that Beethoven's Ode to Joy is the European anthem, but it has no words, because words have to be in a language, and that would be divisive. Um, and of course, there's no cosmopolitan global anthem. Uh, when national economic or political strategies fail, there's still the nation. People rally around its symbols, which provide energy and strength to the country. And even failed, or maybe even especially failed politicians can rally around the flag. When a cosmopolitan strategy fails, there's no safety net. Thirdly is the infrastructure gap. Let's think again about the Cadi case, which I discussed earlier. One way to understand what was missing there is to think about legal and institutional infrastructure. There were no precedents at the global level for dealing with money laundering. No history of combating organized crime, prohibition, or gambling. No laws already criminalized certain activities while constraining what the authorities could do as a result of, of previous legislative and court decisions. When the Security Council seized on the issue of money laundering in the wake of terrorist fears, it faced an institutional vacuum. No wonder that its policies were viewed by many as an abuse of power that required strong pushback. Not only were legal institutions missing, so was the infrastructure of civil society. There was no World Civil Liberties Union. There was no World Bar Association organized on a global transnational basis. Democracy requires, as Robert D. Putnam has argued, voluntary associations, whether uh, bowling leagues or choral societies. If such institutions of global civil society had existed, there would still have been no global media able to magnify and focus complaints and to demand answers from leaders in a public forum. But in the actual situation, leaders were able to hide behind the national security bureaucracies and obscure their own roles because of the non-transparent bargaining institution that is a security council. Powerful and purposeful institutions generally, as you know, seek to expand their power until they're checked. 
The power of the defense intelligence establishment, for example, is now a very serious problem in American foreign policy. At a global level, this is worse because there's neither the legal nor the institutional or the civil society infrastructure to limit the power of non-transparent bureaucracies. It's no wonder, then, that global governance is so flawed and so lacking in genuine democratic content. It's even harder than within countries to pursue public goods. Yet global institutions are expected distinctively to achieve public goods. Emotional support for difficult or dangerous activities is lacking. And there's little institutional, legal, or civil society infrastructure to make democracy work effectively and push back against abuses of power. So I'm going to start coming toward a conclusion, but it'll take a little while. As the trite uh, phrase suggests, global problems demand global solutions. This is an abstract slogan. Fundamentally, it's correct. But in politics, demand does not automatically bring forth supply. And there is no guarantee that the global solutions that emerge will be democratic in character, like the terrorist solutions. The symbols of democracy are all around us as we contemplate the institutions of global governance, but the substance is elusive. Without emotional support embodied in strong flames of identity, people are unlikely to participate actively when their own actions seem to have little impact, much less to internalize the need for global public goods and to pay for them when they're actually paying a net cost. And without the legal, institutional, and civil society infrastructure that makes democracy work, nominal democratization can conceal either the routine or ruthless actions of faceless bureaucracies. Many, many global residents may not even give democracy priority if they believe that tackling such issues as climate change is made more difficult and tragically too late by the requirement of wide discussion and consent. Others may not want to pay the price in terrorism, in, in more terrorism at the margin, for example, if due process ha uh, requirements have to be met to block bank accounts and execute um, suspected terrorists through drone attacks. We will all continue, I think, to hear more calls for global democracy. But the people issuing these calls may not have fully realized or considered the dilemmas and trade-offs involved, much less the interests, emotions, and infrastructure that would be required to make global democracy work. Realizing global democracy will be difficult. It's Max Weber's long, slow boring of hard boards, and it's unlikely to occur quickly. Now, more progress has been made, to be more optimistic, toward a global legal, legal structure, which is a necessary but not sufficient condition for a viable constitutional democracy. For a global constitutional democracy to emerge, uh, there would have to be a further creation of global identities involving a transformation of the concept of citizenship and the internalization of global citizenship around the world. Sustaining global democracy will require establishing a distinctively democratic global infrastructure on a worldwide basis. Meanwhile, however, the costs and trade-offs of global democratization will provide ample incentives to turn the rhetoric of global democracy into the reality of nominal democracy. So I'm not, by all, I'm not seeking at all to debunk the objective of global democracy. Making the world more democratic is a noble cause, and in my view, it's worthwhile if pursued realistically with a long-term agenda, and if people don't believe that somehow it can be Shortcut, because if so, it'll become nominal. It will not be achieved simply through rational argument. It requires institutional, legal, and social infrastructure patiently built over the years. It requires attention to symbolism, symbolism that is deep, that engages the emotions, rather than thinly rhetorical. 
And it requires not just generosity of spirit, but the ability to frame issues in a way that induces contributions to the public good. That is, it requires leadership that not only is capable of brokering deals among states or large transnational actors, but of speaking to the hearts and minds of global publics while being held broadly accountable. We're a long way from reaching the point at which such accountable global leadership, which really links itself to publics, is possible. But one of our aspirations should be to create such conditions for the next generation, for your generation. How can we do this? Well, first, we can more modestly work to develop structures of international law that mesh with domestic constitutional systems, that promote fairness and due process. These legal structures may not be fully democratic. They don't necessarily involve democratic control. But they can reduce arbitrariness and increase the fairness of practices engaged in by the great powers within this, uh, uh, of the context of the Security Council or elsewhere. As you can tell, I'm sympathetic with the European Court in the struggle with the Security Council. And a legal structure is a necessary but not sufficient condition for democracy. Secondly, we can encourage, monitor, and criticize our current leaders. Encourage, if we dismiss them all as, as all a bunch of charlatans, then of course there's no incentive to be better. So we have to differentiate among them. We have to monitor them. We have to criticize them and praise them when it's due. Especially, we, but we can help ensure that they don't get away with passing off nominal democracy, nationally, regionally, or globally, as actual democracy. Those of us from the United States see such casuistry frequently. Consider, for example, the debate about the use of lethal drones. The United States seems to me to have resorted to a defense of lethal drones based on a nominal view of democracy. It goes like this. The practices are justified, it is claimed, because they've been authorized by a government that was elected. This is true. And in many ways behaves according to democratic principles. It's also true. A claim that the United States is democratic is extended to the claim that because it is democratic, its practices that have been authorized by the executive with the claimed implicit or explicit consent of Congress are also democratic. But that part of the argument does not follow, because the practices that this government uses to combat terrorism are among its least democratic, not authorized by legislation, not transparent, without effective checks and balances. The fault may lie with Congress, which dodges every important issue in the United States, except for the ones it wants to just uh, block, um, as much as with the executive. But in either case, calling current practices for drone, lethal drone warfare democratic is a form of, of what Giovanni Sartori once called concept stretching. In this case, the concept of, of democracy is stretched to cover practices that have not been democratically authorized and the principles for which are not transparent. What is needed here is greater transparency and, and clear accountability for lethal drone use. So the second thing we can do then is to try to construct a more accountable, transparent system domestically as well as global, in global affairs. Once again, legal constraints plus transparency accountability, that's not fully democracy, but you're making some steps in the right direction. And thirdly, we can keep building transnational networks. These networks also don't constitute democracy. They're mostly elite. But they can provide some infrastructure for it by nurturing civil society, at least at the elite level. These networks and the personal ties and solidarity that they can nurture can help to substitute, to some extent, for Putnam's bowling leagues and church suppers. And, of course, LSE is a great example of building transnational networks, because there are probably citizens from 40 countries represented in this audience, and you know each other.
Uh, we get to know each other, to build multidimensional ties, and therefore to create what Putnam calls social capital. Social capital can help us work with one another to provide public goods, and may even provide new kinds of emotional ties that substitute to some extent for nationalism. That is, our professional associations and our public-private partnerships can help to build an infrastructure for global democratic governance. The infrastructure is not, is not once again, not sufficient. It's insufficiently uh, popular, but it is necessary. So law, uh, civil society, uh, transnational linkages are all part of, the, part of solving the puzzle. They won't get us all the way to democracy, but they will be necessary conditions for it. Finally, I've said that leadership is essential. A fine recent book on leadership declares that, quote, leaders determine or clarify goals for a group of, of individuals and bring together the energies of members of that group to accomplish these goals. With respect to global governance, the group of individuals is the active, publicly-oriented population of the whole world. And the task of determining or clarifying goals for that larger group is a daunting one. As I emphasize, creating the conditions for which under which such global leadership is possible is one of the tasks we face. Though we can't provide essential political leadership, we can prepare ourselves to recognize it when we see it and support good leaders while we help to keep them accountable. Global democratic governance will require good leadership, but such leadership cannot thrive until people like us and groups like this one have worked to create the political infrastructure that makes it possible. In his last major and prescient speech, Martin Luther King Jr. declared that he'd seen the promised land of racial justice, but he forecast that he would not live to see it realized. We may not live to see global democratic governance, so I hope some of you will. But like Dr. King, in a much smaller way, we can engage in what Weber called the long, slow boring of hard boards that can make it possible for others to realize this dream for future generations. Thanks very much for listening. I look forward to your questions. Do you, do you prefer to stand? Or? I'll, I'll, I'll stand and walk around, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, um, I think this mic is now on. If, uh, thank you very much for a very stimulating um, uh, uh, presentation, and the floor is now open for questions, comments. So, uh, someone up here wants to start off? Yeah. Uh, there are some microphones that are, I believe, yeah, so he's right in the middle there. Well, yeah, you the can't reach right, right in the middle of the... <laughs> of, uh, Third, fourth roll of the balcony. Okay. Is this on? Uh, so, like, one of the obstacles I see to any sort of democracy is for you to actually have informed citizens who know what they really want and know what, they get, know what they're getting themselves into. They need to absorb a massive amount of information so they know what the issues what? are. I didn't catch that word. Sorry? What did you say in the last sentence? Oh. <clears throat> well... They need, can, to. they need to actually have a massive amount of information okay. for them to actually understand what they're getting themselves into. I mean, as you can tell by my accent, I'm from the United States as well. So when we have, for instance, constitutional amendments, it requires two-thirds of the states to agree to it. And so you need to put the um, – you need to basically have people that are from all sorts of different walks of life in these different parts of the country agree on this one thing. And that's very, very difficult, which is why we only have a set number of amendments. Now, if you're trying to have even a majority of the world agree on a certain legal framework, 
that's going to mean that you need to have people in the rest of the, people in one part of the world understanding um, where people in the rest of the world are coming from. So you need to have people in North America understanding how people in India or China feel about it, or how people in Australia or Sub-Saharan Africa feel about these things. And so, yeah, I just see that as being a big obstacle because people need to actually know as much as possible to make informed decisions. And a lot of people don't really have that time, which is why people often have elected officials in the first place, but then, of course, they're inherently corrupt. So, okay. so well, it's a I, question really about information. Uh, I would say uh, that there are two issues here. Yeah. One is the issue of dispersion of preferences. It's much greater worldwide than domestically. And that's maybe the more fundamental issue. It's hard to agree if you don't agree. Mm. You fundamentally don't agree. Uh, you're right about the information point, although that's something where modern technology is changing dramatically, right? Uh, right. Even 30 years ago, it was very difficult to get uh, first have first-hand connections with people elsewhere in the world. And now it's easy through the Internet. So in principle, the informational issue would be, would be more soluble now than it was 30 or 50 yeah. years ago. Uh, the, the, the dispersion of, of attitudes and values issue is, I think, even, even more fundamental. The man with the white shirt. Hi there, thank you. Uh, in 1944, when uh, the United States became the uh, monetary pol- uh, global policy for money uh, across the world, uh, currency, uh, that meant uh, not only did America become an empire, but it meant the end of democracy for any other Western country due to their influence with the global currency. And uh, how, what's your views on that? Thank you. Uh, I'm going to have to clarify the question. The question, I take it, has to do with U.S. economic power. Yeah, Is that right? The globe, yeah, they became the standard currency across the whole world, thus rendering them dominant power and an empire. I, I think your causality is reversed. Yeah. Uh, dominant powers tend to have a dominant currency. Dominant currency tends to be the currency of the dominant powers. The currency doesn't create the power. The powers create the currency. So um, the British pound was the dominant currency uh, when Britain was the dominant power in the world uh, before 1914. Uh, and the American dollar was a dominant, has been a dominant, a dominant currency since uh, 1945, or actually since convertibility in 1958, since the European currencies were convertible. Uh, I'm, I think that uh, having the world's currency creates many advantages for the, for the country having them. And so it, it reinforces power positions. Um, and so it, it, that has that effect. It also imposes costs sometimes. For the United States in 1968 to 1971, when the dollar was the dominant currency, but it was linked to gold at a fixed rate, and the U.S. was weakened by that linkage. So it's not always the case that having the dominant currency uh, creates uh, strength. But in general, it adds to to strength. It also tends to be a lagging indicator. That is, the Dutch currency was dominant, um, was was very strong until well after the Dutch were a powerful economic uh, state. The British pound was was the, the leading currency in the world, arguably, until 1931, and Britain was far from the leading economic power by that time. So it's a lagging indicator of power. Uh, Robert Wade. Yeah. Robert? Uh, yes. Um, I wonder if you have given any thought to 
I wonder, I wonder if you have given any thought to specific institutional organizational forms for global democratic governance. For example, a parliament, a global parliament, which would not be made up of representatives of states um, as uh, the UN General Assembly now, but would be uh, made up of, re of elected representatives from yeah. uh, constituencies. For example, if there was a global parliament of about 350 global MPs, you would have constituencies of roughly 15 million people each. Um, okay, so you can play with all these numbers, but the point is, have you given any thought to yes. ways yes. of institutionalizing such an arrangement? The, this lecture is an argument against that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, in my view, a very foolish idea. Uh, the European Parliament has been not a success, right? European Parliament, they, those parliamentarians have lost connection with their constituencies. Their voting has gone down almost every time uh, in, in European elections. They're viewed very negatively by, uh, by publics. And Europe is hugely more homogeneous than the world. Um, at least half, roughly half the world is not democratic at all. So how you have elections in China and Russia that were meaningful is a... Another question. There was an attempt to do this with the internet, with ICON, the Internet uh, Names and Numbers Corporation, a number of years ago. It was a complete disaster. Uh, that should be the least nationalistic form in the world. And the Japanese voted for Japanese, and the Germans voted for Germans, and the Chinese voted for Chinese, uh, and it, it fell apart, and, and it was abandoned. So I think my, the brunt of my lecture, Robert, is that we are many decades away from that being a sensible idea. Um, I think uh, in the front here, uh, just on the left, yeah. Uh, thank you. Two questions. First, do you think with this uncheck and virtually uncheckable power, the global governance will event eventually turn into a global dictatorship for all? And secondly, why is a uh, democratic global governance preferable to a shared and balanced uh, power among international regional organizations and sovereign states? Thank you. I, I, I didn't get the, the first question. I'll try to answer the second one. You can come back with the first one. Um, a, a democratic global governance would, in my view, be, if it, were fees, if it were feasible and actually not nominal democracy, but actual democracy, would be superior to a governance system in which there are a number of autocratic states that don't respect human rights. Uh, and in, in which there is the ever-present possibility of military conflict among states. So I actually think that democratic global governance is a good ideal, would be a positive ideal. Uh, it'll, it, we have a problem in world politics called war. That problem would be, at least interstate war wouldn't be possible with this, uh, with this structure. We have serious problems with human rights abuses by many of the leading states in the world. If you had a genuinely democratic governance, uh, that would be superior. So I adamantly believe that a democratic global governance, if it were feasible, would be a superior form of governance. We're just very far from it, which is the point of my talk. Matthias Koenig. Uh, <clears throat> thanks very much for uh, discussing the Cadi case, which is very interesting. But I wonder if the implication of this case, uh, rather than a tension between democracy and global governance, is, uh, is that there is a tension between two very imperfectly 
democratically legitimate powers, so the UN Security Council can claim some partial democratic legitimacy because majority of permanent members are democracies, let's say three and a half members are democracies. Uh, perhaps at the time also the border memberships might have been composed by democracy. Uh, while the European Court of Justice also could say, well, we are representing democracies, we have been created by democracies, but it's only partially democratically legitimate because uh, uh, you know, it's a European Court of Justice, not a global Court of Justice. So here, if the issue is a trade-off between security and liberty, you know, the substantive issue, is the problem not that there should be some sort of institution that uh, is able to do this kind of trade-offs that goes beyond this very imperfectly legitimate democracies. So we come back to something like uh, uh, the global parliament, which uh, might be uh, perhaps unloved, but uh, you know, which parliament today is unloved? I'm not sure if the US Congress receives a lot of uh, love by, uh, uh, by Americans, like the US flag or the US anthem does. And definitely in Europe, many parliaments are not much more highly regarded than the European Parliament. Thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I think that the, Europe, the UN Security Council is not even nominally democratic. It is undemocratic in the extreme. Any organization which has a veto by five states that were uh, chosen because they were victors of a war 70 years ago, uh, two of which are minor powers, and two of which are autocracies, is not a democratic institution. It's not even nominally democratic. It's just far from democratic. So I totally think this is not a, 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 the European Court of Justice is a legal institution within a democratic framework. So it has it plays a role in, in a in a quasi democratic system. The European Union, uh, the, uh, the Security Council, for all its virtues, is certainly an instrument of global governance. It's the strongest one we have in the security area. It's essential, but it's not democratic. And it's about as far from democracy as, as one can be. There's another word about the parliament idea. I think that to have an, effect, an effective democratic governance, not only do you have to have the kind of civil society institutions that I mentioned that we don't have at the global level now, but you have to have a connection between the representative and the constituency. And if there were a global governance system, it would have to be federal. Uh, a single Euro global parliament, I think, makes no sense because you have such a large constituency that there's no connection. And we know how people feel about remote politicians. So all, de all real democratic politics has a local component. It may not be, all be, all be, it may not be the case, as Tip O'Neill once said, that all politics is, is local. But all democratic politics requires a local connection, requires that you have some link to your representative, and you can actually believe you could, you could reach this person or influence him or her in some way. And if the average uh, constituency is 15 million, you can't, you can't believe that rationally. So I think if we had a, a democratic governance system, if one were created sometime, it'd have to be a layered system, it'd have to be a federal system, there'd have to be some real connection with on-the-ground on politicians working up to this larger parliament, but we're just so far away from that. Uh, that we haven't, we don't even, have, we don't have, we have very few of the conditions that will make that feasible and workable. Right, so a, lot, a lot of hands going up, so I'm trying to keep track. I think the uh, man right some more women if we, if we uh, have at the back. Have their hands up. Um, I'm looking out. Get some gender balance here. Yeah, there's a woman there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. 
Hi, um, given your inference, <laughs> sorry, I'm not a woman with a deep voice. I'm just, just a regular guy. Uh, um, next, oh, the next questioner will be. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> sorry. So, given your your inference or the impotence of the um, the UN as an organisation for active change um, against climate change, doesn't that just render most um, institutions of global governance redundant? Why? Why redundant? Well, if there can't be any effective change, as you've noted, with the global warming crisis and actual um, signatories pulling out, then what real point is there to an organization? uh, The fact that climate change, which is one of the most difficult areas because of the public goods quality, is not solved on a global basis, does not, of course, mean that all global institutions are worthless. The World Trade Organization is tremendously valuable. We don't have trade wars anymore. Uh, and we don't have it largely because of GATT and, and, and WTO. Um, we have a number of other institutions. The World Health Organization is not always the thing of yourself, including the Ebola crisis. But if we didn't have it, we, uh, we'd have to invent it. Uh, we, have a, we have a whole series of international institutions that actually make a positive difference, including the Security Council, for that matter, on terrorism. So the fact that an institution can't solve the most difficult of all possible problems is, a, is, not a, is not a rationale for saying it's not doing anything worthwhile. Think about the UN Millennium Goals, the Millennium Goals, uh, uh, the development goals that, that, that Kofi Annan pioneered. They're actually pretty much on track for getting there, not quite as fast, but remarkable progress on those goals. So you have to differentiate. You don't, you don't, you don't generalize from one case and say they failed here, therefore they failed everywhere. But isn't it the most pressing of issues? Wars and climate change, for example. War is an issue on which the, the, uh, the UN has done, has done fairly well. So if you look at the series of, uh, of peacekeeping operations by the UN, look at Paige Fortin's work. Peacekeeping works. There's documentation that peacekeeping works. Uh, Paige Fortin and, and, and also Michael Doyle. The best work on this makes it clear that peacekeeping works. So you've got to differentiate. There are some, some areas in which international institutions have done very well, trade and recently peacekeeping. Some issues like climate change, very badly. But in those cases, it's the domestic politics of the key actors that are the key. It's not the international institutions that are the problem. It's the U.S. and China and India and Brazil and other countries that are unwilling to act for domestic political reasons. At the back. Hi. Um, so you talked, you touched on this, and you touched about on democracy being led by elites, pretty much, and touched on the fact that global structure, global institutions uh, that t- try to be democratic, or at least nominally so, have a fault in being only nominally democratic. My problem is, where does the responsibility for the failure of global democratic governance lie? Um, in John Dewey's word, words, we need to have a a public that is engaged and that is striving towards a common good uh, to have democracy at the domestic level. Where is the, where is the global public? Where is the responsibility in the global public? Uh, the democracy, uh, the, the fault lies first, as I emphasized, there's a set of infrastructural gaps that exist because global governance hasn't been tried very long. So there isn't, uh, and, and because we don't have emotional ties to the globe and so on. Those are nobody's fault. That comes because of the very recent aspiration 
Nobody even really thought seriously about global governance, and that, that phrase wasn't used until 20, 25 or 30 years ago. So it's, a very, it's very new, and the whole infrastructure is not there. Now, that's probably the most basic issue. The second issue, of course, is that, uh, this is true of democratic publics, people have a hard time grasping large-scale problems. Not everybody is a graduate of, of LSE. And, and that's one reason why democracy often works best at the local level. Because people do tend to understand their local problems. They observe them all the time. And they comprehend them much better than they understand the global ones. So, you'd ha- so since people will behave that way, we, we would have to build build this infrastructure to allow a vibrant democratic governance at the, at the local level to translate in, in a series into a global governance system. So I don't want to call a fault. There's also, of course, fault. It's all your responsibility. <laughs> it's, your, it's your responsibility over the next, over, over your whole lifetimes. It's going to be a lifetime project. It's not going to happen in 2020 or 2030 or 2040. It's your responsibility as member, as people who are as close LSE students, as close to global citizens as you can get, to go out there and to think, keep this in mind when you're doing your business work or your academic work or your other nonprofit work. Like, am I making a contribution, even in a small way, to creating the preconditions for which? for a genuinely global governance system in the next generation. Right in the middle there, um, the glass is... uh, Uh, Sorry, no, in front of you. You referred to the way in which national politicians mobilize against the enemy... And I wonder whether, on a global level, in regard to climate change, the Green Movement can mobilize by identifying the enemy as the major corporations which profit from from greenhouse gases, whether that can be an enemy against which global citizens can mobilize to try to slow climate change. So my view on this is very different. I think uh, in the phrase of the comic, we have met the enemy and it is us. It's not the, it's not the, corpor- it's not the corporations. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's publics, it's ourselves, who don't take it seriously, who uh, travel unnecessarily by airplane to give lectures at the London School of Economics, uh, uh, who don't turn the lights off or don't have time to insulate their houses. Uh, Blaming the the global corporations is is a canard. It's a waste of time. It it takes the responsibility off yourself onto some faceless people. Uh, In fact, some of those corporations have been more proactive on climate change because not because they're better people, but because they're reputational reasons than the ordinary citizens have. Uh, It is deeply our problem. Uh, And it's not something you can say, oh, you can blame this this bad actor or that bad actor. the corporations will, will thrive in a capitalist society. Uh, they would thrive with a serious climate change action. Now, there are only few exceptions. Oil, oil and gas corporations have, obviously have an interest. And so they, some of them, Mobile, for example, has been terrible on this issue. You could point to some particular corporations that have a vested interest in 
not having, having climate change. You can point to some countries like Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries which have an interest against climate change action. But to say corporations as a whole as opposed to individuals, no, I don't think so. I think individuals think we are as much the problem as the corporation in the abstract. Yeah, I think down here, um, just so, yeah. Uh, 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 My doubt is basically with the idea that you talk about this global citizen who kind of identifies with something above his national state through symbols and euphemisms. Um, I I, I kind of find that conflicting because if you look around today, there seems to be this whole resurgence of cultural nationalism or religious nationalism. We had it in India in the last elections where the right-wing parties came back to power. You had it in, uh, you know, and you can see it in different countries uh, as an increasing trend. So I kind of find that conflicting with this idea of people relating with something about their national identity. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about well, that. You're maybe. right on the theme that I was trying to talk about when I talked about the lack of emotional resonance of of global governance. It tends to be a project by academics and lawyers and people who are very much rationalistic uh, and, and in, the, in the enlightenment mindset. And it doesn't speak to people's emotional ties. So, and I don't have an answer to that. I think that we will have to have, I think if you are genuinely going to have global democracy, you're going to have to have some way of making an attachment, emotional attachment to it. Now, Climate change is a possibility. If, in fact, we get more and more evidence that the climate is being, that the, that the globe is being damaged seriously by climate change, you could imagine an ecological movement which has that emotional quality. Because if we lose our living, our, our livelihood, and our living spaces and the places we love, we might become very emotionally involved with that. Um, we need something like that. Uh, we don't have it yet. Let's have a couple, couple more women. Huh? We have, we have yeah, one over uh, here and we have one um, over here. Have hands yeah, up. there's a couple. I, I had, I, okay, you're in a blind spot there, so I don't know how long you've had your hands up. But um, maybe we take two questions now. Yeah, two or three that? is fine. Yeah, okay, you, you, you had a hand up a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, you could, yeah, you thank said you. you haven't got a question. Though. Thank you very much. I would like to, know, I would like to um, get your view on the role of information technology. On the role of int- you mentioned the emotional gap, and I'm wondering if you've thought about the role of uh, communication and information technology in breaching the emotional gap, because um, many events that happen across the world, you know, generate global emotion uh, because of the information that that, is, that flows around. Well, you know, that's a great question, but it's not probably one, someone, uh, a question that someone my age can answer. It's probably someone, people in the room can answer better. Because for me, electronic communication um, is an instrumental form of, of, of communicating and doesn't have a lot of emotional content. I think for you, on Facebook uh, and YouTube and Snapchat and whatever, uh, it's got a lot more emotional content. So maybe you can figure out how to generate that emotional, that emotional empathy and content trans, uh, uh, transnationally in this, in this virtual world uh, that, um, that I can't figure out. The, um, we had a discussion last night, I was part of at Oxford, and the question was, was raised, uh, we're talking about the virtual world, is it, which, is, which is more real, the virtual world or the so-called physical real world? And apparently there's some ambiguity about that. And maybe if the virtual world becomes more real, it'll have more emotional content. 
and perhaps there'll be some way to solve that problem. I'm not sure how that's going to pro- solve the problem of sex, but that's, that's your, your generation's problem. So, um, I'm not an academic, but I have worked for many of these international organizations. And I've just come from a day with my current international financial institution where we've been looking at our future. Um, and I was just, the trends that we see, there are these global institutions, so I work for one of them, um, I've worked for several of them, but there are also now coalitions of states, so the G20s, the G7s, uh, and there, there are more of them emerging, so they don't make an attempt to be legitimate or nominally democratic, but you might ask yourself, if you only need really the 12 biggest emitters on climate change to uh, reach an agreement, then why why do we need to bother with the 200-some member states of the UN General Assembly or the UN FFC? So what do you think about these groups? They don't seem to be particularly more effective in the climate area, for example, but have they been uh, with regard to dealing with the outcomes of the financial crisis, for example? I was just wondering what you think, and, and because we see this all over the place, so the failure to reach uh, WTO deals, more spaghetti, free trade agreements, how do, you, how do you mesh the two together? Because there seems to be more of that now. That's, that's a great question, and it gets back to the trade-offs I was talking about. In the absence of the infrastructure that makes uh, global democracy feasible, anyone who wants to solve a problem doesn't go that way. Uh, so the problem-solving organizations tend to be, uh, be the Financial Action Task Force, 20 countries, the group of 20, uh, 20 countries, uh, uh, the, the key players in climate change. As you say, if you had 12, you'd have 85% of the climate problem solved. And so quite naturally, so this, this is a reflection of what I'm talking about. That is, if your objective is to solve a certain problem, like to solve a, a global financial crisis problem or to solve a climate change problem uh, or, or to solve a variety of problems, you're going to look for the smallest group that you can actually be effective with because you know that adding additional players will put more veto players on the stage and make it harder to, to, uh, to solve the problem at a reasonable cost. Uh, but, of course, then you're not going the democratic way. That's, 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 that's the whole point that the structure of the system is such that there are trade-offs and dilemmas between these two. And so in the short term, we're going to see choices made that are, let's solve this problem. I would solve the climate problem undemocratically if I could. I wouldn't say, okay, sorry, we have to make sure that, uh, that uh, Bolivia and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Cuba sign on to this agreement. I'd ride roughshod over them if I could solve the climate problem. Uh, but I wouldn't be helping global democracy, and if I claimed this was a democratic solution, then I'd be hypocritical. Yeah, I'm down here in the middle, yeah, in the white. Yeah. Well, if if I understood you well, you believe that we live in an era of. Uh, prevailing organized hypocrisy in on a transnational level in a kind of many of transnational organizations. Now, I would like to ask you two questions. One would be, besides global climate change and the fight against terrorism, would you consider rising inequalities as a possible topic for the ideal democratic global governance. Do you believe that the generations which 
have a future in front of them more than we do would face more conflicts because of those unsolved problems. And what would be your advice to those generations to deal with this organized hypocrisy? Thank you. Thank you. I think that politics always involves trade-offs among values. It's never the case that everything, every good thing goes together. And that was, that's been the case forever. Take the, take the politics of any country at any time, and you have trade-offs involved. You can't achieve everything at once. Uh, and so if you want to, if Greece had, a, Greece had a vibrant, brilliant intellectual civilization, it was also a, 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 a society with slaves. Slavery was a necessary condition for that elite operating. Those trade-offs, push any society and, and you'll see those trade-offs because resources are limited and aspirations are different. So that's, that's we, we face that, the next generations will face that, the past generations will face that. So we always have to ask ourselves what those trade-offs are and what our values are and what our objectives are and how we can meet those. And of course it's clear that things change when there's a tough situation like 1940. 41 in this country uh, with World War II, certain trade-offs, it, it, certain restrictions on liberty become more acceptable, right? Because you have a, you have a real trade-off with them. When, it, uh, when, when things ease up, those restrictions are no longer acceptable. That's the kind of trade-off. So those trade-offs are going to be inherent. Now, organized hypocrisy, I want to say two things. First, I think it's inherent in democratic politics because democratic politicians have an have a incentive to promise more than they can deliver uh, to please voters and to try to be all things to all people. I also think there are a lot worse things than, you know, than hypocrisy. Uh, totalitarian institutions are often not so hypocritical. ISIS is not very, very hypocritical. We're going to kill you if you're not, if you're not a, a fundamentalist Sunni who believes in, in what we believe in. That's not hypocritical at all, but it's a hell of a lot worse, right? It's cruelty. So hypocrisy is, the, as, as, as Judith Clark put it once in a great book on, uh, called, called Ordinary Virtue, hypocrisy is the least awful vice. There are lots of vices that are worse. To be hypocritical, you have to have some values, or pretend to. You have to be speaking to an audience that has some values. And you're trying to do more than you can do, given your constraints, by uh, claiming you're doing things you aren't doing, uh, or otherwise uh, behaving hypocritically. There are a lot worse things than that. Uh, and we see them around the world. So uh, I think that we're going to... I hope we will be living with organized hypocrisy forever. Because if we're not, we're going to be in some totalitarian or authoritarian mess. So uh, I, I, I started the talk with Cranston's notion of organized hypocrisy. It's a very important. Any student of politics ought to be always looking for the, for the hypocrisy. Never take it face value what you're told. Because usually there's the hypocrisy there. But there are a lot worse things in the world than that. Hi, my name is... Hi, my name is Armin. I'm a student here in the International Development Department. Um, there seems to be a revival of nationalism currently. I mean, Europe is going crazy, especially this country. And Asia, we see in Asia, uh, basically, basically the same. And so the, I think nationalism seems to be quite high on, uh, in the three points you mentioned. Probably in the ranking it would be number one. Nationalism goes back to the nation-state, the Treaty of Westphalia, which was uh, and did this well. This concept of the nation-state was um, basically uh, yeah, coerced um, by European powers on 
China on uh, well all over Asia, Africa, um, basically uh, the Arabic world. So um, this is one observation why we have some maybe some difficulties. And the other one is that democracy seems to be very local. It comes from the Greek police, right? So um, on this global level, do you think it would be maybe more efficient to start with a more meritocratic structure and then induce step-by-step step more democratic features on it? Thank you. Well, the two different questions. Uh, on, on, the, on your last point, I think that's what actually is, ha- is if you think about the trends toward legalization that are stronger than the trends toward democratization, uh, you, you can talk about a, a constitutional structure preceding democracy. But I, I want to differ entirely with your view of nationalism. First place, Tria Westphalia has nothing to do with nationalism. It, it occurs uh, in 1648, which is by any, any reasonable kind of at least 150, uh, 139 years before nationalism appeared in the French Revolution. There was no nationalism. The whole point was that the, that the leader of the state uh, had to be obeyed no matter what the religious orientation or national views of the Hedony of the population. So Westphalia is not to blame for this. It was a, was a way to say each leader controls his, always, almost always his, his own territory and population, and they better obey him or get out. And they better not say, oh, I'm a Protestant, you have to, you have to treat me well. Uh, so, and it was a way to, a way to bring peace after, after 30 years at the price, of, at, at the cost of human rights. Uh, and nationalism wasn't, uh, nationalism, in my view, is a form it's, it's, a, it's an adaptation of group feeling, which is in our DNA, because it comes, it's evolutionarily selected for. So it's not foisted by the West on anybody. Uh, in fact, the West actually foisted imperialism on the rest of the world, and that wasn't nationalism. Uh, nationalism is, unfortunately, I think much deeper. The problem is it's given a certain institutional structure. This uh, group affiliation tendency that human beings had. And for a very good reason, we wouldn't have survived by ourselves. Uh, so people who didn't have a, a tendency to bond with that group didn't pass on their genes, and those people, those genes aren't, aren't around anymore. So we have a deep, a deep reason for this. Uh, and it takes the form now of nationalism because you have nation states. It took the form earlier of, of uh, uh, different forms, but I don't think you should, you should see it as, as foisted by the West on, on anybody. Uh, and it certainly it, it doesn't date it, it's, it doesn't date from before of the French Revolution, I think, by a reasonable standard. Uh, there are hands going up everywhere at the moment, so um, and we're running let's, let's short on time. We'll be right here, right in the middle. Yeah. We, we don't have gender balance yet, but we're trying to catch up. Um, my question is, would you consider inequality as one of the obstacles towards global governance idea? Because if we look, like, not every people has an access to the lectures like this, or not every people has an access to travel to get the idea of global citizenship. So do you consider that it's one of the main obstacles, and how should people tackle with this? Uh, answer is yes, double exclamation point. Uh, inequality is, is a big problem for democracy at home. And the United States is much more unequal than it was 20 or 30 years ago or, or, or 40 years ago. And arguably, this has been a real incursion on democracy, made it more harder to have democracy. Uh, so I think at the national level, inequality generates 
uh, opposition, uh, uh, failure of democracy. Uh, and internationally, also, it's another problem. So even if we had, you're absolutely right, even if we had all the infrastructure I talked about, the emotional bonds and so on, uh, at an extreme level of inequality, uh, there would be a problem. Now, we have to recognize that inequality is very great within poor countries as well as across countries. So it's not to say the cross-country inequality is not maybe as important as the interpersonal inequality which you have to think about both within countries and across them. So uh, the rapidly growing uh, developing countries, China and India and Brazil, are also increasing in inequality. Not surprising, if everybody was very poor before, they were fairly equal, and now some people become, become rich or somewhat rich, and of course there's, there's increased inequality. But it is a serious problem at the national level, and if we ever got close to the infrastructure for global democracy, it'd be a serious problem at the global level. Do you want to choose one or two? No, she's the um, next. I, next I would like to ask you: Do you think that it's an aim to have a democratic global governance for every issue, including, for example, the fight against terrorism or against narcotraffic? Or there are some issues that can be more democratic than others in this sense? Okay, that's a great question. It's a great question, um, and it relates to the answer I gave earlier uh, about climate change being difficult. There are. Uh, so certain issues ought to be more subject to quasi-democratic practices than others. Uh, insofar as ordinary individuals can evaluate actions, they, that should be more conducive to democracy than if it's something abstract that you only can read about or, 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 or hear about. Um, uh, insofar as uh, there, there is, the oper uh, insofar as reciprocity can operate, giving incentives to act, it should be more, more feasible to have democratic governance. If I know that if I act, you may act, and you may act, and you may act, and we can magnify the effect, it's very different than if I think if I act, you're going to have even less, less inclination to act, as with climate change, because I've already solved, partly solved the problem for you. Uh, so that uh, I think that's a very good line of, uh, line of argument, which asks which problems are more conducive to, to democratic governance. It may be, it may be now, the, uh, the Cotty case suggests that uh, issues that involve clear violations of human rights that are perceived widely, even across different societies, as violations of human rights are more conducive to it. So we have, it's violated sometimes, including um, shamefully by my own government in the last uh, 15 years. But the Convention on, on Torture has a remarkably widespread adherence to it, at least nominally, as opposed to other so you could ask the question, how universal is a set of values? And you might expect that with a very universal set of values, um, such as opposition to torture, which is quite, quite universal, uh, then uh, you, you would expect a closer approximation, a closer ability to have at least quasi-democratic arrangements than a situation where uh, there is no fundamental agreement, such as the importance of requiring that uh, citizens of one's polity believe in religion or in a particular religion, on which there's no agreement. So it would be very hard to think of that. As, so I think you could ask, which are the leading edge issues for the democratization, and which are the lagging ones? It's a great question. 
Uh, my question. I think we are. That's a good off. question. And, uh, it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, two, I two think um, we're. Uh, uh, time is running out. I mean, there are so many hands up, and I'm extremely sorry we don't have more time to let you all ask your questions. But the fact that there are so many hands up is testament to the uh, stimulating uh, nature of the talk and the discussion. You've obviously touched a nerve here. Um, so uh, let's put our hands together to thank Professor Hunter. Thank